I got to do this, we got to do this, right? Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Kevin Shingleton. I'm one of the uh, elders here at Gray Road. And um, if you don't know me, when I was um, a child, from my earliest days, I had a fascination with outer space. I was, I was just fascinated with astronomy and everything related to space and, and the space program. And um, I could tell you all of the planets and how, you know, the order of the planets and how far those planets are away from the sun and uh, the diameter of those planets and the characteristics of those planets and how many moons those planets had and the names of those moons. Uh, actually, hearing me say that, it sounds pretty pathetic. But, um, but I was fascinated with space. And, and I loved the space program and all things NASA. And uh, I, I determined as a young child that that was going to be what I was going to do. That was my dream. I was going to be an astronaut. And, uh, and I, I held on to that dream uh, to the ripe old age of six. Because at the age of six, I was introduced to this instrument of death known as the sit and spin. If, you've, if you don't know the sit and spin, I think it's still around today. The sit and spin is this malicious, sadistic device masquerading as a toy by Hasbro where you would sit on it and you would spin. I guess that makes sense. And so I thought, this is great. I've never seen this before. This is great. I'm going to start my astronaut training early. Because I had seen you know, all the things they do to train astronauts. So I sat down, and I started spinning myself as fast as I could for about 30 seconds. And then I stopped, but the world kept going. And I couldn't stand up. I ended up getting sick to my stomach. And my dreams of being an astronaut were dashed at age six. If you want to know what I learned from that, if there's any kids still in here, I learned that if you have dreams, they're probably not going to work out, so stay in school. <laughs> so uh, I do motivational speaking in case you're interested. Um, and, and yet I, I still was fascinated with, with the space program and NASA, and I knew everything about the, the Apollo program was my favorite. I knew all the astronauts. I knew all the missions. The, the two missions that got the most press uh, were, of course, Apollo 11, where we landed on the moon, and Apollo 13, where you had the, uh, you know, the explosion and the rescue and all that. But the, the one that I really liked that I think is overlooked is uh, Apollo 8. Because in Apollo 8, we did something we had never done before. We, we, we got into outer, true outer space. We left the Earth's atmosphere for the first time. That was the goal of the mission. It's late 1968. You know, JFK had promised or, or had kind of set out that challenge that we were going to get to the moon by the end of the decade. And, um, and we were running out of time. We were racing the Russians. It was late 68. We weren't going to make it if we kept on the schedule. And so they said, well, Apollo 8, we're not just going to go into outer space. We're going to add the next mission as well, and we're going to orbit the moon. And so a huge risk and, and all this. And so they you know, they planned for it, and, and it was actually really successful, probably the most accomplished in a single mission of all of them. And, and what was interesting to me about that is that when they were talking about this mission, most of the focus was on the moon and how do we get there and what, you know, orbiting it and the dark side of the moon and all of that. But the astronauts will tell you that the most impactful part of that mission was they, they, they were the first human beings that had gotten far enough away from the Earth 
to actually see the earth as a whole. And, and they, they talked often about how profound that was, that picture that we see now often of, of that perfect little marble just hanging in the sky in the vast darkness of outer space. And they, that, that was very profound to them. They could see the entire planet and all of the people on the planet at the same time for the first time for any, any human being. And, and they talked about how that changed their perspective on a lot of things. It changed, the, the one, one man that, that took the picture, he said, it, it changed my perspective on, on the events that were going on in the world, and it changed my perspective on the people in the world. Because the 60s, right, was a lot of strife and, and, um, and division and protests and riots and wars, right? If you think, you know, 2020 was unprecedented in terms of unrest, uh, if you lived through the 60s, you're probably like, eh, I've seen this before. A lot going on. And, and he said, when I, when I looked at the world from this perspective, it made all of those divisions and hatred, it, it, it all seemed pretty petty in this bigger perspective. And when he saw the people, when he thought of the people of the world, he thought, man, if everybody could see the world from this perspective, they would realize how tiny we really are in this huge universe, and maybe we should spend more time coming together and loving each other and serving each other instead of being divided and hating each other. And so his perspective on, on the events and the people of the world was changed forever. And I thought it was interesting that they told him they wanted him to read something on the broadcast back to Earth that they was, thought was appropriate for this moment that they were experiencing. And, and a broadcast that went to probably a billion people, well, the only thing that they could think was appropriate was to read Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I thought about that, uh, that mission and that change of perspective often the last couple of weeks as I've been thinking about our emphasis this morning, thinking biblically about your worldview. If, if you're not familiar with that term worldview, it, it's, it's really not that mysterious. Your worldview is simply how you see the world how you view the world, how you make sense of the world, how you make sense of the reality of the world, how you react to what's going on in the world and how you live out your life in that world. And, and their worldview literally was changed forever and it changed the way they saw the events of the world, the people of the world, and then how they lived out in that world. Our worldview does the same for us. And, and we need to be thinking biblically about how we see the world around us. This is the first in a series of, of quarterly uh, messages that we're going to have throughout 2021 and maybe into next year about how to think biblically about certain issues in the world around us. And as we brainstormed that as a group of elders, we came up with 10, 12, 15 of those pretty quickly that we need to be thinking biblically about but we started with this idea of a worldview because if you start with a biblical worldview, it's going to shade everything else, all right? And if you wonder what a biblical worldview will impact, let me just give you a few issues uh, in the world today that will be directly impacted by your worldview. It will impact the way you see politics and patriotism, gender, sexuality, marriage, relationships. It'll impact the way you see life, unborn and born. 
It will impact the way you see the origins of life and the earth and the universe. It will impact the way you see environment, the environment and environmentalism. It will impact the way you see evil and suffering and pain and hatred in the world. It will impact the way you see race and immigration and human rights and equality, war and the military, protests and riots and injustice, taxation and government and economics and poverty, censorship and persecution and religious freedom, and even things like pandemics will be shaped by your worldview. And if you are not thinking biblically about what you're seeing in the world around you, that's going to impact the way you live in this world. And so we need to be thinking biblically. I want to, I want to start with how a biblical worldview can impact our lives, just to kind of emphasize why this is important, all right? I, just off the top of my head, here's, here's a few things that uh, biblical worldview, how it can impact our lives. Number one, it gives me an eternal viewpoint in a temporal world. It gives me a stable foundation in a constantly changing world. It gives me an absolute truth in a, in a very relative world. It gives me deep, unshakable principles in a world that's driven by perception and opinion. It gives me joy and peace and hope in a world of hatred, confusion, and despair. And finally, it reorients me from a me-centered view of the world to a God-centered view. And so we're going to talk about this uh, this morning. Let's pray together before we begin. God, we are so grateful for your word and how it helps us think rightly about the world around us. Would you open our eyes to these truths from your word and speak clearly to us? Would you encourage us and challenge us through your words this morning? And we pray this in the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. We're going to be in Colossians 2 this morning. If you could turn there in your Bibles, it's um, page 983 in the Pew Bible if you're using that. And there's a lot that we could say about worldview. If we were going to have a series on worldview, uh, like a, a Sunday school series, it would be 10 to 12 weeks minimum. And so we certainly can't say everything there is to say about worldview. So I want to start with two givens up front. Uh, these are two things that I think will be obvious, but if I don't mention them, I think they'll kind of be rattling around in your mind. So let's get these out of the way up front. These are two very important givens that we will start with, that we will assume this morning before we jump into our text in Colossians 2. And these are going to be really profound, especially the first one, all right? You ready? And these are no particular importance, so it's 1A and 1B. The first one is a biblical worldview starts with the Bible. Isn't, isn't that profound? If you're, not, if you're new to Gray Road, this is the kind of deep, profound insights you're going to get. <laughs> a biblical worldview starts with the Bible. Maybe we could shade that a little bit. It starts with a right view of the Bible. And that may seem unnecessary to have to say that. That may seem redundant to have to say that. But I think we can see, of course, in the world, but even in the church, the relevance and the importance and the weight given to the scriptures is diminishing. And so we need to be discerning about that as a starting point here 
a biblical worldview starts with the right view of the scriptures, which starts with the fact that these are the very words of God himself spoken through the Spirit to the human writers, one author, many writers, one message from beginning to end, which means it is both infallible and inerrant. It does not err and it cannot err because it comes from God himself. It has proven itself to be these things through history, through prophecy, and, and through the, the eyewitness historical account of Jesus' life and his death and the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as well as the spirit-bearing witness in our hearts and through the transformation of our hearts and minds, right, we, the scriptures have proven themselves to be the very words of God. And we must hold on to that right view of the Bible as we think about having a biblical worldview. The second one seems just as obvious, but just as necessary. A biblical worldview starts with God himself and starts with a right view of God. If you're going to have a biblical worldview, you don't start in Matthew chapter 1. You start in Genesis chapter 1, right? Because if it didn't start with God, if in the beginning God didn't create the heavens and the earth, then, then Matthew 1 makes absolutely no sense, right? If there is no God, no sovereign God who is holy and righteous and just, right, then, then a savior to save us from the wrath and justice of that God because of sin does not make any sense as completely unnecessary. And so even as we are thinking about this, it doesn't start in the New Testament. It starts from the very beginning. It starts with God. And if you start with God as our sovereign creator, that is going to shape every single one of those issues that we started with. Every single one. And if you come to Growth Group on Wednesday, you'll have the opportunity to kind of talk through some of those and make that practical. So it starts with the Bible. It starts with a right view of God. And you might say, well, isn't that enough to have a biblical worldview? You know, I start with God, surely I'm going to be in good shape. Well, I think you understand that there are billions of people in the world who believe in God who have nothing resembling a biblical worldview. And, and frankly, many Christians who would, who would believe in God and the Bible and still struggle to think rightly about the world around them. And so it goes further than that, and that's what we're going to see in Colossians 2, is that it not only starts with the Bible, it not only starts with God, a biblical worldview is rooted in Jesus Christ. And I think we're going to see why this is so important. And so we are going to read the first eight verses of uh, Colossians chapter 2. We're going to focus on the last three, but I want to read the first five just to give the context, because Paul is dealing in, in the book of Colossians with this church with with an issue where there's false teachers that are coming in and bringing a, a human-centered philosophy and human-centered teaching and false teaching into the church, and they're, and they're trying to deceive uh, the church and delude the church. And Paul is worried about this, and so he, he spends this chapter dealing with this, especially in the first eight verses. And so let me read these first eight verses to give us the context. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
I say this, and here's, here's the danger, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. But isn't that relevant in 2021? That no one delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and your firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. We're just gonna see two things in this text. It's a beautiful text. It's one of the, you know, Paul, a lot of Paul's texts that kind of preach themselves, because there's these beautiful, simple, succinct, powerful, visual phrases. And we're gonna see two things. What he's telling them and what he would tell us today is if you are rooted in Christ, you are going to be resistant to the world's thinking. And, and, it's, and I think we'll see how this fits very well with, with thinking biblically about our worldview. Rooted in Christ. He starts with this first phrase, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. And this, this is where he wants them to be grounded. This is where we need to be grounded as believers in Jesus Christ. He starts with the fact that this word received, is, is, it's emphasizing not the person doing the receiving, but the one doing the giving. You have been given everything you have in Jesus Christ. He starts with the premise that you didn't, and if, you know, from, from Toby's message last week, you heard that loud and clear, right? right? This is not something I earned. This is not something I figured out. This is not something that, that I found. Uh, this is something that I was given. This is the unmerited grace of God. That, that is what I need to be grounded in because that will give me the humility I need to do everything else that he's going to say here. So being grounded in the reality that everything I have been given is by the grace of God, he says, so walk in him. And, and this is a kind of a natural conclusion. If, if you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord is really the emphasis there. So if you've received him as Lord and he is your Lord, the only fitting response is that you will walk in him. That word walk there uh, just simply means the daily pattern of your life, day after day after day after day. Right, if somebody asks you, what, what's, what, what, is, what is this person like? They're gonna say, well, this is what they do. Day after day after day after day. It's the daily pattern of your life. It's, it's if, if you think about what does it mean to walk in him, it's really not mysterious. It means as, our, as Jesus is our Lord, we are following his example. We are immersed in his teachings, right? Which means we are in the scriptures. We are in his presence in prayer. We are following his spirit's conviction and leading. We are pursuing him to know him and to glorify him. That's what it means to walk in him as his disciple because he is our Lord. And watch, watch how these build one on top of the other. So you've received Christ, you're grounded in that humility, you received him as Lord, and so you're walking in him day after day after day after day. And then it says rooted and built up. 
Uh, I, we understand this agricultural picture of, of being rooted, right? It's used often in the New Testament, trees and vines and plants. And, and the idea of being rooted, I think, is very intuitive. I helped my son plant uh, some trees in his, at his house this fall, about maybe three or four months ago. And you know how that goes, right? You, big a, you, know, you dig a big hole and you take the burlap off and you score the roots and you plant it and you put the dirt back in and you water it and you line it up. And, and that tree is planted and that tree has roots, right? But I could go over there right now, I'm sure between the two of us, we could go over there right now and rip that thing right out of the ground, right? Because it has roots, but it's not rooted, right? How does something get rooted? This is, very, this is very intuitive, right? It gets rooted day after day after day after day, watering and feeding and sunlight, right? You see the picture he's drawing. If you're going to be rooted in Christ, right, it's going to be something that happens as you walk in him day after day after day, feeding and watering and being in the light of his presence. It's going to take those roots deep. This is a picture of deep roots, that bring strength, all right? And then once you have that deep-rooted foundation, then you can build on top of that, which is what he says next, built up. You have the, the foundation of the deep, strong roots, and now you can build up on top of that, which is a picture of growth, a picture of maturity, a picture of sanctification. You see, you see the picture he's drawn here? Grounded in humility, walking in him, which roots you deep, and helps you to, to grow. And then he ends it with this picture of established in the faith. And you see in that word established, in the middle of that, you see stable, right? This means to be stabilized, to be steady, right? Which is a natural picture, rooted in Christ. Now you grow in him, and as you do that, you get more strong, you get more stable, you get more steady, right? So that as the winds of the world come through, either false thinking or bad circumstances or trials or whatever, and the chaos of the world that's happening every day, right, you're going to be stable. You're going to be steady. All right? What a, what a beautiful picture. Right? And how foolish would it be if, if for, when I took those trees over to my, my son's house and, and we were going to plant those, how foolish would it be for us to have put those in the garage on the concrete and closed the door and, and, and for me to tell him, you know, uh, you know, you never planted trees before. Here's how it's going to go. You know, once, once a week, I want you to open the garage, let a little light in, and put a little water on the tree, and then after about an hour or so, you close, close the garage down. What's going to happen to that tree? It's going to be dead in in days, if not weeks. But if we're not careful, that's kind of the way we can approach uh, the Christian life. The same kind of folly, right, is if, if we treat the Christian life that way, then I'm going to live in the darkness of the world and be influenced by the, the, the thinking of the world and the opinions of the world and the media and the social media and the entertainment of the world for 99.9% .9 of my time. And I hope that, that opening the garage door and letting a little light in on Sunday morning is going to counterbalance that. It just doesn't work that way, church, right? We've got to be discerning about that. I need to be walking day after day after day after day feeding, watering, being in the light of his presence so I can be rooted, right? So that, that I can grow and be established and be steady.
And then finally, he says this last thing, which may not seem to fit on the surface, but I think it's a beautiful completion of this picture. Having done all of those things, it says, abounding in thanksgiving. Right? If you are rooted in Christ, and you have grown and stabilized and are steady, right, there's going to be an overflowing of gratitude. This is it's a picture of the overflowing fruit of a grace-filled life. This is what's going to characterize someone who is rooted in Christ. Right? And it's going to lead to the, you know, the other fruit of the Spirit. Right? You're going to see joy, and you're going to see peace, and you're going to see hope right? in the midst of the chaos. And you're going to be abounding in thanksgiving and in gratitude. That's going to be the, the, a dominant characteristic of your life. Now, time for the fair question. In the last 12 months, pretty crazy, right? Think about what's happened in the last 12 months, you know, from, the, from the pandemic to uh, the unrest and to the protests and the, and the riots and the politics and the election and all that stuff. If you were to look at your life, fair question, if you were to look at your life, if I was to look at my life, <laughs> Is my life over the last 12 months characterized by steady? Was it characterized by overflowing with gratitude in the midst of all this? Was it categorized by the fruit of the Spirit of I didn't lose my joy and my peace and my hope and my trust through all of this chaos? Or, or, or did your life look more like the, the chaos of the world? Right? If, if we were to take a, a look back into, into your, your, your home over the last year, uh, maybe look at your social media feed, God help us, um, what, what, would, what would we see? Would we see steady? Or would we see that we have been act, impacted by the chaos of the world and that we have lost our gratitude? I mean, man, can you, can you really say the last 12 months that, that the dom a dominant characteristic of your life is gratitude? and joy, and peace, and trust? Or were you blown off course by the chaos in the world? Were you dominated more by fear, and doubt, and despair, and complaining, and negativity? Oh, it's so easy to get pulled into that, right? Rooted in Christ, we're going to be steady. We're going to be stable in the midst of that chaos. And then Paul says, if you're rooted in Christ, you're going to be resistant to the world's thinking, to the world's philosophy. If we don't think biblically about our worldview, we will have the world's view. And Paul says, you're rooted in Christ, you're going to be resistant to this kind of thinking that's going to knock you off course. And I love it, since we're talking about worldview, I love the first word that he uses in verse 8 is the word see. And, and in other translations, it may say beware or be on the alert or be aware. The, the word there is see. See clearly. It's, it's, a, it's a watchman on the wall kind of word. Right? See clearly. This is, this is a, an awareness word where you are always 
looking closely and aware of what is going on around you, aware of the dangers around you, aware of the deception around you, aware of how quickly you can be uh, distracted. See to it, he says, that no one takes you captive. This is, a, this is a fascinating word, that no one takes you captive. We might say it this way, uh, don't let the world's thinking captivate you. Right? That's, that's, captive is in that word. Don't let the world's thinking captivate you. Don't let it take you captive. This, Paul is framing a battle for the mind here. Don't let the world's thinking take you captive. And, and the idea here, of course, this is a, this is a war word. The, the picture here is a marauding army coming in and defeating you and not only taking prisoners, but also plundering all of your stuff. Everything that you have is taken away. And that's really the, the, the root underneath this. Don't be plundered by the world's deception and the world's thinking. Don't let it plunder your gratitude. Don't let it plunder your joy. Don't let it plunder your peace and your hope. It's a powerful picture. And, and Paul uses this, this terminology elsewhere, right, where he talks about taking every thought captive. I think what's important to see here is this, this isn't just a defensive mentality of I'm going to circle the wagons and I'm going to huddle down and we're going to ride it out and we're going to hide now, we're, we're, we're to be in the world, not of it. Right? We're going to be in the world. These things are going to come. It's not a defensive posture. This is an offensive posture. I love that in, in 2 Corinthians 10, taking every thought captive picture, right? That sometimes you can't avoid, you know, that, that stuff coming in. Uh, you're going to hear things. You're going to see things. Those thoughts are going to come into your mind. You can't avoid that sometimes, but you can avoid how you respond to it, Right? And, and I love that picture. You, you take that thought prisoner. And you don't let that thought go any further. You take it prisoner to the obedience of Christ and what you know, the reality that you know in Christ, being rooted in Christ, right? That's, that you have been given everything of the grace of God in Jesus. And, and you are one of God's children. He has a plan and purpose for your life. You are filled with gratitude and joy and peace and hope. You take that thought prisoner and do not let that plunder what you have in Jesus. It's a battle for the mind and it's fought one thought at a time. And then he says, he gives three phrases that describes this type of thinking that he's warning about. And, and, and these build on, on each other again. The first thing he says, uh, don't be taken captive, don't be captivated, captivated by philosophy and empty deceit. And that, in English, that looks like two different things, but it's really one idea. Literally, it's through the empty deceit of their philosophy or through, through the philosophy of empty deceit. The picture here is, is not that the philosophy itself is, is, is bad. Uh, you can have a good philosophy, you can have a bad philosophy. Um, but th this is a human philosophy, a human-centered philosophy that is designed to deceive. And, and the word, this is why it fits so well with worldview. The word philosophy, if you look at the definition, both in Greek and in English, it's basically the same. See if these, some of these words sound familiar. 
It's the study of general and fundamental questions that impact how you see the reality of the world around you and make sense of the world around you. It deals with things like reason, existence, knowledge, values, belief. Doesn't philosophy sound like a lot like your worldview? Your philosophy influences your worldview. And Paul is saying, don't, don't, don't buy into, don't be deceived by the plausible arguments of the world's empty philosophy. This idea of the philosophy of empty deceit, if you were to think about it in, in the terms of a, of a diet, right? The philosophy of empty deceit, empty deceit would be um, junk food or refined sugars and, and flours that, that taste good, uh, but there's no nutritional value. There's no substance, right? They're words that, that are carefully crafted to sound good, but there's no, there's no um, basis of truth or substance to them, right? I mean, isn't that relevant in the world around us today? Carefully crafted words intended to deceive. This is the philosophy of empty deceit. Plausible arguments that have no substance. And he says, the reason this is a philosophy of empty deceit, he goes on to say, is, is because it's according to human tradition. And this, this idea of human tradition is not like what we would think of tradition. It's not like going to grandma's house every, every Thanksgiving. It's not that kind of tradition. The tradition here is a, is a teaching uh, that's, that's either cultural or social or religious uh, tradition or teaching that's passed down uh, from one to another either from teacher to student, from philosopher uh, to follower, uh, or, or within a family. And, and so the issue is not the traditions, because this word is used of Christian teaching as well. The issue is, is that these are human-based traditions. And the idea here, and tell me this isn't relevant today, the idea here is this, that these are, these are actually opinions, human opinions, that have been shared so long and so broadly that they become facts. I mean, doesn't that sound relevant to today? Something we need to be discerning about? Human opinions, human theories even, that have been shared so long that they've become fact. And to the point that if you, if you don't accept those as, as fact, then, then you know, you're, you're ignorant or you're, you're stupid or, you know, or you're, you're, you're some version of phobic, right? And, and so it's, it's something that we really need to be discerning about in the world's type of, of thinking. If we're going to think biblically about the issues of the world around us, there's a philosophy of empty deceit. It's based in human opinion that is, that is presented as fact. And then finally, he says, it's according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And what he's, what he's ending this with is, it's all based, the elemental spirits or the elemental principles, things that are based only on the earthly, the temporary, or the temporal, uh, the physical, only things that you can sense with your five senses, right? Only things that are earthly. This type of philosophy leaves no room for the divine, leaves no room for the supernatural. It's only based on the physical. And Paul mentions it later when he says, you're getting hung up on what you eat and what you drink. Those are the elemental principles. It's so much bigger than that. And so that's what he's warning against here. Philosophy of empty deceit, it's, it's a human-centered wisdom that's based on carefully crafted words intended to deceive, human opinions presented as facts, 
with, with only uh, a, a base of the, 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 the earthly, the temporal, the physical, no room for the divine or the supernatural. The best example I can give of this in, in the religious realm is uh, a couple decades ago, there was something called the Jesus Project. And in the Jesus Project, uh, a group of religious scholars, and I use that term in the loosest sense possible, religious scholars uh, came together to do a groundbreaking work, and they were going to assess the four Gospels and, and ascertain once and for all, declare once and for all, which passages in the Gospels were historical narrative and which passages were fable and legend. And here's their premise. They had one given. Their premise was this, religious scholars, their premise was this, the supernatural is not possible, and so anything that refers to something supernatural is obviously myth and legend. Right? That's the type of thinking that we're talking about here. Right? The folly of trying to explain the divine, <laughs> but limiting yourself only to the human. That's, that's the type of philosophy. And I've heard it described this way. I love this. I've heard it described this way. It's like somebody bringing a sundial into your house with a flashlight and telling you what time it is. You're, you're, you're trying to define something that is supernatural and divine only in human language, in human terms. This is the philosophy of the world. The philosophy of the world starts with the reality that there, there was no God who created everything. Right? And then that shades everything else, right? Because there is no God, right? There, there is no real purpose to life because we're just a cosmic freak accident. There is no meaning to life. There is no plan or design to life. And because there is no creator, there is no sovereign God, there is no authority, there is no absolute morality, right? You see, you see how this, the, the dots connect here, right? And, and there, everything is, is relative. There are no absolutes. There are no absolute truths. And at the end of the day, it's all about you because there isn't anything else. And when you look at the world around you and the chaos around you, this view will say, you know what, you should be worried and you should uh, fear and you should doubt and you should despair because you are on your own. There's nobody coming to help you. There's no grand plan. There's no creator. There's no God working things out. You're on your own. And, and while we would not have that philosophy, man, that type of thinking, right? If you're being ruled by fear and doubt and uncertainty and despair, right? That human-centered thinking, that me-centered thinking has crept into your life. You need to be discerning. We need to be walking day after day, feeding and watering and in the presence of our Savior so we can be grounded and we can grow and we can be steady in the face of all these things. If I could summarize in a, in a statement uh, this morning what we've talked about in a way that's been very helpful for me, uh, I would do it this way. A biblical worldview, encompassing the givens and Colossians 2, a biblical worldview is one that certainly includes these two things. It is shaped by the reality of a sovereign creator, and it is seen from the perspective of a redeemed sinner. Here's why I find that very helpful. 
Uh, remember we talked about how, you know, in your worldview, back to Apollo 8, it, it helped them see the events of the world differently, and it helped them see the people of the world differently. That's, that's two, the two dominant parts of our worldview, I think. And if I think from the reality, of my, I look at the events of the world shaped by the reality of a sovereign creator, it, it helps me see those in a way that's, that keeps me steady. And if I look at the people in the world from the, from the perspective of a redeemed sinner, it helps me have the right perspective on how I see those people. Let me give you an example. Let's, let's imagine, if you will, <laughs> that, that there's been, in the last 12 months, there's a decision that has come down from a, from a government official or a government body, either at a national level or a state level or, or a, a local level, that you do not agree with. You fundamentally disagree with it. You disagree with it either on moral grounds or ideological grounds or political grounds or, or based on rights or whatever. You disagree with it fundamentally. How do you think biblically about That's happened to all of us in the last 12 months, right? And how do we think biblically about that? Well, if I, if I see that from you know, the event itself, the decision itself, the issue itself, from the perspective of a sovereign creator, right? I'm going to say, well, this, this didn't take God by surprise. God is the one who sets up uh, leaders and takes them down. He is sovereign. God has a plan and purpose. He is still on the throne. He has a plan and purpose that he is working out in this world, in my nation, in my state, in my city, in my home. Right? And I'm going to rest in that. If I see this from a perspective of a sovereign creator, I'm going to rest in that. Right? That's going to keep me steady. Right? I'm not going to fly off the handle and write a Facebook manifesto, right? I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to be steady. I'm going to, see that. I'm going to see that from the perspective of a sovereign creator. It's going to keep me steady. It's not going to keep me up at night. It's not going to rob my joy and my peace. It's not going to rob my gratitude so I just go around complaining. All right? It's going to keep me steady. But what about the people? We can't forget about there are people uh, that, that are causing these issues or events are involved in these, how do I think rightly about those people? Even though I may despise the decisions that they've made, how do I think rightly about them? If I see them from the perspective of a redeemed sinner, and I'm grounded in the humility that everything I have I've received by the grace of God, and, and I am and overflowing with the gratitude of that reality, right? I'm going to see that person not as my enemy, not as somebody to be despised or opposed I'm not going to see their primary need as to change their thinking or their ideologically ideology or their politics or their party. I'm going to see, man, their biggest need is, is the same as my biggest need. They need the grace of God as much as I do. And I'm going to see them as a soul that God loved as part of the world and that he doesn't, he, he's not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. I should see them as a soul that I could then even... For this one that I despise politically, I can, I can pray for them and say, oh God, can you imagine? You've, you're picturing somebody in your head right now. Oh God, would you bring someone into their path this week to share the gospel with them? Because how are they going to believe that they've never heard? And how are they going to hear without a teacher? Would you bring someone to share the gospel to them? Would you change them? Can you imagine the glory that God would get if you changed this person It transformed them forever? Seeing that person or those people from the perspective of a redeemed sinner, 
It's going to change the way I see that. that that's, that's kind of the macro view. What about, what about something much closer to home? These things don't just affect the, the big picture. They affect our everyday lives as well. Imagine that your spouse has done something uh, to offend you or to hurt you or they've sinned against you. How do I think rightly about that? How do I think biblically about that? Well, if I see that from the perspective of a sovereign creator, I'm going to know that God is the one who brought us together. God is the one who, who has purposed that the marriage be a picture of unconditional love and grace, a picture of Christ in the church. He's purposed that the home be where we grow and are sanctified even through the hurts. Right? It's going to help me see that from the right perspective so that when I respond to that person from the, from the perspective of a redeemed sinner, I'm going to remember how many times I've been forgiven, how much grace and mercy I've received as I've confessed over and over and over and God has been faithful and just to forgive me of my sin. That's going to give me the right perspective to respond to them with grace, with patience, with honesty still, but with the perspective, I, I, want, to, I want to build reconciliation here. I don't want to get revenge I don't want to have my rights. It's going to change the way I handle much things much closer to home as well. We need to have a biblical perspective, right, that's, that's, that starts with the right view of the Bible, a right view of God rooted in Christ, right, so we can see the world from the reality of a sovereign creator from the perspective of a redeemed sinner. Let me close with one thought. My love of astronomy, <clears throat> my love of astronomy as a kid led to a love in studying the history of astronomy as I got older. And um, <clears throat> excuse me. And I loved, I just loved seeing how the views of the of the Earth and the Sun and the solar system and the universe have changed over the last two thousand years. I thought I could make it without this, but hang on. And uh, <clears throat> the reality is, is that our view. <clears throat> Our view of the Earth and the solar system and the universe really didn't change much for the first 1,500 years. It basically was one uh, human opinion or human theory that said, you know, the, the Earth is the center of everything, right? It, it's, it was at its roots in Aristotle. It was formalized by a guy named Ptolemy that said the Earth is the center. The Earth doesn't move. Everything revolves around the Earth. I mean, it's typical human thinking, right? Surely the universe revolves around us. And that, that was the dominant theory for 1,500 years in science and in religion. And, and a guy named Copernicus, one of my favorite guys, he, he's the one that finally, there were, there were doubts along the way from others, but he kind of built on the work of others, his own observations and his knowledge of mathematics to say, nope, the earth isn't the center, that doesn't make sense, the sun is the center. And part of the reason he did that, which I find fascinating, is that he, he actually was a, a, a devout Christian. He believed in a sovereign, orderly creator. And he said an orderly creator would not have done uh, this, what I see from an Earth-centered model. Because in an Earth-centered model, the, the orbits of the planets don't make sense. Because sometimes they're going east to west, sometimes they're going west to east, based on whether the Earth is in front of them or in back of them. And, and so they had to come up with all these crazy theories to explain away what they call retrograde motion. And he's like, that's just chaos. A god of order would not have done that. And when he put the sun in the center, all of a sudden you have this very elegant, orderly picture. And, and that was rooted in his, in his belief in a sovereign, uh, orderly creator. 
And that set off what's called the Copernican Revolution. Over the next 200 years, it took 200 years for that view to become the dominant view because both science and religion had to come to the reality that it was kind of, um, you know, from a human perspective, it was tough to swallow that I'm, we're not the center of everything. You know, we're just a small part of a much bigger picture. It's kind of jarring to the human psyche. And, and as I thought about that, uh, I see some parallels to my own Christian experience. At, at some point, I, and if, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you, you had your own Copernican revolution of sorts. At some point, you came to the realization that the earth doesn't revolve around me. It, it, I, I am not, as Toby said last week, I am not the master of my faith, the captain of my soul. It's not all up to me. This is what religion says. It's all up to you, right? And if you're going to get to heaven, man, it is all up to you. This is what religion says. If you do enough of the right things and you don't do the bad things and you're better than most, man, you're going to get to heaven or paradise or God or whatever, and there's nobody can take that from you, not even God. It's all up to you. And at some point, if you're a Christian, you came to the realization that that me-centered view, right, is not right because you came to the realization that God is holy and God is righteous and God is just and his standard is perfection. There is no amount of, of good works that I can ever achieve uh, to get to his standards. So it's out of my hands. I am not in control of this thing. I, I, I need help. I need help from somebody else. And so I need to reorient my me-centered view of the universe to a Christ-centered view of the universe because he is my only hope. His righteousness is my only hope to meet God's perfect standard. His death, sacrificial death, is my only hope to meet God's justice and wrath against sin. And then his resurrection is my only hope of eternal life. Now, as I reorient my, my worldview from me uh, to Christ, chaos and confusion becomes order and purpose and design. And then I can have uh, joy and peace and hope and gratitude in the midst of chaos of the world's circumstances. If you, if you want to know more about Jesus and what it means uh, to be a believer in him and the impact that that will have on your life, uh, I would love to talk to you. Any one of these members would love to talk to you. Please reach out and speak to us. Uh, it is so vital and so important. It will change the way you see the world and it will change the way you live in the world. Uh, let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for Jesus, our only hope. God, would you challenge us uh, this week that we would see clearly the battle that is around us, that we would take captive any errant thoughts that would plunder our joy or our peace, our hope, that would fill us with fear and doubt and uncertainty and despair, that we would be overflowing with gratitude and grounded in the humility of your grace to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.